and good morning, afternoon, evening, whatever time of day it may be for you. What's up with the what's up? Welcome to another episode of Believe in the Business of Fitness. I'm your host, The Coach, and today we are reaching back to the hometown. I am very excited today. We are bringing on Hannah Hoopmer. She is a professional alpinist and climber who is sponsored by the North Face in their first ever athlete development program. Um, I actually met uh, Hootie, as she likes to be called, back when I was finishing up my grad degree in Wichita State. She was a good friend of my fiance, well, is a good friend of my fiance. And, you know, she has actually gone through this incredible journey in life. She has lived in Southeast Asia, Alaska, the East Coast, West Coast. She's traveled down to Mexico and a lot of other places, not only in a quest to really kind of figure out what she wants to do in life. But to really just craft the life that she wants to live in her own organic way. And so for all our entrepreneurs out there, especially those in the climbing space, you're going to get a lot of value out of this episode because not only is she a sponsored athlete, but she's also going to talk about how she's made ends meet while pursuing these dreams in a very nomadic lifestyle. It's going to be an incredibly intriguing and useful episode. As always, please make sure to like and subscribe and to send this to all of your friends and family. We do appreciate the listenership like that. We're ready to go. Let's roll it. Honestly, this is really long overdue, uh, but not really a secret either for my listeners. Anyone that I've been connected to back to the hometown, I've really just been kind of saving them. And this season just happens to be the one where I'm really tapping back. So for all our listeners out there, Hannah, would you go ahead and introduce yourself and give a little bit about your background, about what you do for a living, and just give our listeners a really good chance to get to know you on the, uh, on the surface level. Okay. Uh, yeah, my name is Hannah Hootmer. I'm from Kansas originally, but I've popped around quite a bit and uh, made a home for myself in Colorado after graduating from college. And I work in the outdoor industry. And a lot of times you'll hear me refer to it as the industry. And kind of what I mean by the outdoor industry is like guiding and um, non-sports, whether it's professionally or recreationally. Um, yeah, a lot of climbing and mountain biking and alpinism and things like that uh, are all included in the industry, as I will often refer to it. But that's kind of what I do professionally. I work for the American Alpine Club as their programs manager, and I work for the North Face as a climber. All right. So for the listeners out there, as you can tell just from the intro, this is a completely new territory, just like our MMA fighters were and our overseas business coaches were earlier in this season. I'm super excited. So Hannah and I, we've actually met through my fiance uh, when they were working together at a restaurant back home that I still visit twice every time I go back. Um, and when I first met you, I remember that you saying like, oh yeah, I like to be outdoors. I remember when you were studying at Wichita State, you were really into insects um, in particular, as I remember. But when I finally added you on Facebook and everything, and I saw you as you started progressing through life between the climbing activities, the biking and everything, I, I was a little jealous. I was like, you are like a, I want to say, 
one of the last living nomads to me. So you said you've kind of settled down and made a home for yourself in Colorado. What what is the typical lifestyle for someone in your industry? And what would you ex- what exactly would you call yourself as a professional title? Would you say you're an alpinist? Would you say you're an extreme athlete? I mean, or is it still unknown? Oh, um, I guess I'll start with your first question, which is kind of like, what's the day in the life of someone in, in my industry? And I would say, you know, I have totally, quote unquote, settled down in Colorado and I have a home base, but my landlord often jokes that I'm only here like 40% of the time. And they just feel bad for charging me rent because I'm like actually not even dwelling here. Um, And I would say that's pretty common in my industry. Uh, A lot of us like to have a a home base to return to, but I I have always been really outdoorsy and it started as my love for like the little things in the prairie uh, in Kansas and my environmental science degree that I pursued at Wichita State University. And after college, my eyes and my scope just expanded exponentially to the entire world and what was all out there. And uh, so I definitely went from being an explorer in this really niche part of like tall grass prairie studies to discovering that there was a whole world out there that I wanted to explore with my hands and my feet and my mind just the way that I did in college, but it just looks quite a bit different (laughs) when you're exploring these like remote and extreme areas of the world. And so uh, I kind of, I think it's like that same love for the outdoors and that same love for discovering things and experiencing them and making my own observations on the ground from my scientific background that I took into the mountains and to what I do now professionally. Um, but it obviously looks quite different <laughs> than what I was doing before. Um, so yeah, the normal day in the life for me is I'm home a few weeks, I'm gone a few weeks, alternating throughout the year. Um, and when I'm home, a lot of skiing and biking and climbing right in my backyard, a lot of trail running. Uh, And when I'm gone, it's me doing those same things, but in other places that I also really want to explore. So I guess the title on my paychecks say climber um, on one of them. And on my other one, it says, volunteer programs manager for the nonprofit, the American Alpine Club. And right now I feel like there's this new up and coming industry of people that are considered community organizers and community leaders. And a lot of big companies are uh, really focusing on having a community organizer to increase the longevity of their employees staying with the company by curating and breeding that sense of community. And uh, I guess if I had to choose or kind of define what industry I work in and what 
most of my job is it's um more geared towards that like community organizer role hannah hoopmer community organizer slash <laughs> climber slash <laughs> just everything uh pretty there's, much there's a book i read i'm gonna butcher the title of it i'm gonna fix it in the show notes for everyone i think it's called um many careers one life i know that's not right at all but i will find it um but yeah you you're just reminding me a lot of me and a lot of my other guests when we're just when you do so much it's just hard to put yourself in a box to explain to people but before we get into the details i want to i want to take it back like really far back um growing up did you have a love for you know just being outdoors and you know getting involved in nature and doing extreme things like climbing or is that something you discovered later on in life uh, the love for the outdoors was definitely always there. My parents had to beg me to come inside pretty much every day. And I would go out and I would catch snakes every day and look at insects. And I had just animal and plant ID books in my little tree house. And I would go and look at things and take pictures and collect samples and then like, go back up into my tree house and ID things. So that was definitely a really natural progression into what I ended up doing in college. Um, like, wow, I can do this as a job. That's crazy. Um, but as far as like the sports side of it goes, I don't really feel like I was ever particularly athletic. I got really good at tennis and that was basically it. Like, I, I was a tennis player and I didn't ever try climbing until my early 20s. Interesting. And just curious, uh, I, I know I've met your parents once. Um, admittedly, it was at a gig that someone was playing, and I think I was probably already about five beers in. But um, <laughs> I, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe one of them was a doctor, but are are your parents entrepreneurs at all? And if they're, and if, if they're not a doctor, please go ahead and correct me now. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, my dad is an aerospace engineer, and my mom was a teacher and a high school counselor for like 33 years and is now uh, doing private practice therapy. Mm. Okay. Okay. And so your mom has her own practice where she runs everything from the insurance billing and everything I'm guessing, right? Uh, she signed on with like another practice. And I want to say that they're actually a nonprofit too. It's actually a recent transition, so I'm not entirely familiar with uh, what she's doing now. But yeah, she's taking on her own clients and dealing with the billing and all of that as well. But uh, it is through this other umbrella nonprofit in Wichita that she's doing that through. Okay, so you're kind of like the first real entrepreneur, it sounds like, in your immediate family. Oh, yeah, definitely. Interesting. That is, you know, I'm, I'm going to talk more about that on, uh, offline. I'm curious to how your parents feel. But so went into college, realized, man, I can do this for a living, got into climbing a little bit later. So once you graduated, obviously, we left to Phoenix to do our thing. You took a very 
very sharp left turn. Matter of fact, you did more than a left turn. You did a left turn, a 360, a backflip, and ended up in a whole different space. Can you tell our listeners about some of the places that you've been and to some of your um, some of the places that you've actually climbed as well? Yeah, so I left college and did your like typical thing where the, for the first time in your life, no one is telling you what to do. And you're like, wait, what? What do I what do I want to do? I'm not like following this path that has been like pre laid out for me like it has been for the past 20 years. And so I guess like the first thing I did was I went to Indonesia for a couple of months um, just to kind of reward myself for all of the hard work I'd been doing over the past couple of years. Um, and then once I got back, and I think that really opened my eyes to the entrepreneurial and like the alternative lifestyles that was something I had encountered for the first time in my travels abroad. Uh, what, there was all these people from all over the world who were really loved scuba diving and I love scuba diving. I had like hundreds of dives under my belt and that's predominantly what I was doing while I was traveling in Southeast Asia. Um, and I met all of these people who just really loved it as much as I did. And they turned it into their job, their career, and they became professional dive instructors. And they just went scuba diving every day. And it was something I'd never even heard of or really considered being from Kansas and having zero exposure to that. And I think that was like the first time that I had seen what it looked like to really just kind of like move away and forge your own path. And I was like, wow, that's really interesting. I kind of even entertained the idea of doing it myself, but I ended up going back to the States, um, moving to North Carolina and really just falling flat on my face as far as feeling really directionless. And like, I wasn't, I didn't have anything that I was working towards anymore. And, um, kind of just hit this huge funk, this huge depression spell where I didn't leave the house for weeks and weeks on end, uh, got really unhealthy, like physically and mentally. And one day in this like mo single moment of clarity, I thought like, I've got to do something, you know, really extreme to get myself out of this funk. And, um, so I ended up sorting a job board for jobs based in by state. And I was like, okay, what is the craziest state that I can choose? That's like really gonna like push me out of my comfort zone and get me out of this funk. And so I chose Alaska. And uh, then I sorted the jobs in Alaska and there's a ton of serving and bartending jobs. And I was like, oh, well, that's easy. You know, I have serving and bartending experience. I can just like get my foot in the door right away and then take it from there. But then I thought, no, like that's not really going to challenge you at all. It's just doing the same thing you've always done, but in a different location. And so I was like, fuck it. I'm going to choose like the most silly, ridiculous thing I can find on this list. And there was this glacier backpacking guiding job in a super remote town with a population of 15 people in Alaska. 
where you lived in a tent the entire time. <laughs> yeah, you had to live in a tent. There was like no running water. So you had to like sauna every four days in like a group bathing situation. Um, like you're, you only got groceries every five weeks. So you're eating a lot of like canned and preserved foods. Uh, it was just like a completely different experience than anything I'd ever known or and I knew nothing about mountains or like glaciers or bears or moose or living in the middle of nowhere in Alaska um but despite all of that they ended up hiring me <laughs> and said that they could train me and everything that I needed to know but they can't train personality and they liked my personality and so uh i moved there and became a glacier and backpacking guide in alaska and that's really what introduced me to all like everyone i worked with as fellow guides there were all pretty exceptional mountain athletes and i felt like a fish out of water <laughs> i mean i really did struggle quite a bit when i first moved there but eventually I just fell in love with all the different sports and you know, just hearing other guides talk about other places they had been, types of climbing that they enjoy made me really want to experience it for myself. And we also had a pretty extensive library of um, books that were all related to climbing and mountains and the outdoors there. And I had a lot of free time on my hands to read books because there was nothing else to do in a town of 15 people. Uh, and so I ended up reading a ton of books about other climbers and other trips people had taken around the world. And I mean, that just really lit a fire in me, I think. So, I mean, that's my origin story right there. Um, so afterward I, I want to oh, yeah, go ahead. I, I want to recap this for a few of our listeners. Uh, most people leave after college to find themselves. I'm using I'm using air quotes. I know you can't see me right now. You went to Southeast Asia, came back, North Carolina, eh, Alaska, and in in the span of what? How long has this been? Maybe two years, three years. Yeah, it was like probably a two year span. Two year span, and you have lived in the most remote place in the United States. Not only were you a scuba instructor, um, and then you, now you're a climbing instructor, and you did it totally immersed, by the way, which everyone says is the best way to learn something is total immersion. So whether you're trying to learn a language or if you're getting into combat sports, they say the best thing to do is totally immerse yourself. Did you realize that you were doing that when it came to um climbing um a little bit i a lot of people ask me you know like oh you're so brave or you know bold or whatever that's a tough thing to do and i think my mindset going into pretty much anything is i think to myself okay well what's the worst case scenario the worst case scenario is i move to alaska and i realize i hate it and then i go home like honestly that's the worst thing that could happen and so you know, I think, yeah, it, it was really intimidating for me to throw myself into that situation. 
um, like kind of out of the frying pan into the fire. But ultimately I asked myself, you know, like what's the worst thing that happens is I go there and I realize I don't like it. And then I go back to what I was doing. I know you don't know this, but I say that all the time to people that always tell me really? that I'm scared. I'm scared to do something. I say, and yeah, I take it a little bit more extreme. Now. I was like, what's the worst thing that could happen? Like you die. And then <laughs> they just look at yeah, me. We're all like, gonna, we're all going to die anyways. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So if you're not happy with the way things are going, why not make a change? So I want to applaud you for that first off, because that's that's incredible. But go ahead, I'm I'm listening. I'm I actually I'm thinking about getting some popcorn here. I'm gonna I'm gonna enjoy this. <laughs> Just sit back, and listen to me blather. So, uh, yeah, I first got introduced to ice climbing while I was in Alaska, and after working there for a few months uh several of the guides were saying that they were going to come back to colorado to beaver creek specifically which is where i still live and um they were going to go be ski instructors and i was like okay well i guess i'll just come with you guys and go be a ski instructor in colorado once again did not have any experience being a ski instructor but figured i would just kind of figure it out along the way um and i moved here and all of the ski instructors that i was working with were also going to the climbing gym and uh rock climbing indoors and i would often get invited and everyone wanted to know you know if i could lead climb and that's kind of like the next progression in a lot of climbers careers uh it's like you gotta learn how to lead if you want to go climb anything really outdoors. And I did not know. And so I took a class at the local tiny climbing gym here in Eagle, Colorado. And they taught me how to lead climb. And this was only in 2019 that I did that. And so it wasn't even that long ago that I was really learning like the first basic step of getting into climbing even sort of seriously. And it kind of just took off from there. I learned from as many people as I could. I tried to find a lot of mentors in the community. I took classes whenever I could afford them. I checked out a lot of technical manuals from the library and I would just read manuals about climbing, like how to assess terrain and I would watch YouTube videos on how to use maps and I don't know I just like kind of self-taught myself everything that I needed to know to like keep continuing to do things that I wanted to do and an analogy that I really like to use for for climbing is that we all kind of have this like preloaded super blurry Google Earth in our brain um, and it's preloaded with a bunch of really giant pixels that are super blurry and you can't really tell what's going on a lot of places because you don't have enough information to fill in those pixels. And what I really love about climbing and the outdoor industry specifically is it really encourages people and is a catalyst for people to try and fill in those pixels. And so, you know, first you get into hiking and 
you love hiking and you start looking up all of these destinations that you can go hike to. And then that makes you start filling in some of those pixels around the world because you start learning about other places and other cultures and uh, places that you can go visit and you explore them with your own two feet and put your eyes on things and you you know what those places smell like and what they feel like and what they sound like and everything starts filling in with all this intimate detail with climbing and the more disciplines of climbing that you learn and the better you get at it the more pixels become accessible to you because there are a lot of blurry ass pixels like off in some distant land and the Karakoram or the Himalayas that you can really only access if you have a certain set of skills and abilities. And uh, I think the really cool thing about what I do is it drives you to like want to fill in those gaps in your knowledge and your experience and have an intimate relationship with landscapes and with parts of that Google Earth in your brain that so few people will ever have access to. You know, there is a, another book I read. I'm having a lot of fun here traveling down my mind uh, listening to you too. It's, uh, God, you know, I'm going to put it in the show notes too, everyone. Uh, then I'll let you know how this week's been. But you have this thing already, um, total buy-in, and you do more than just a job and a career. You have um, what they call a God. I'm gonna I'm gonna kick myself for getting the name of this word. Um, watch it come back to me at like the near this at the end of this interview. But essentially, it's like a purpose for your life, and it it's always it's always connected to something you love. And yours seems to be being outdoor and having experiences. And the reason why I say that is because everything you do, you talk about it with such passion and you've done it and you've done it naturally without having to. I know you read a lot of books while in Alaska, but without having to kind of do this all encompassing self-proclaimed self journey, it just seems to like have fallen into you and you've had total buy in on it. And so uh, the thing, the reason why I mentioned that is because I want to know if someone is interested in getting to that level of commitment, how would you suggest they get there? Um, it's a really good question. I know that, you know, my methods might not be the best or like the most comfortable <laughs> for most people. Um, there were a lot of times I just felt like I was winging it. And I would also would kind of say that I'm, I've never really felt like everything that I have done either personally or professionally, I don't really know that I was ever actively working towards it. I think honestly, a lot of people ask me, why I do what I do and how I've achieved what I've achieved. And a lot of it is just me waking up every day and asking myself like, well, what do I want to do today? And it has led me down this path of personal and professional success. 
I don't know that I ever had my eyes on it. Like even my career with the American Alpine Club is my is like my dream job when I stumbled upon it. And I just randomly saw a job posting on a random website and I thought to myself, oh, that would be like the coolest job ever. I'm totally not qualified for it. Um, what the heck, I'll put in an application anyways, ended up getting it. And it ended up changing a lot about my life because I'd gone from this kind of like hobbyist climber who did a lot of things on her own. And I didn't really have a network either in the industry, in the outdoor industry or the industry at all before starting my job at the club. Um, but then after getting it and like, all of a sudden, half my coworkers are professional climbers or should be professional climbers. And then everyone we work with, we've worked with all the major brands and we work with a lot of professional athletes. Um, so all of a sudden my network became a lot larger and I really was fully immersed in the outdoor industry and it became my life. Like everything from like the moment I woke up, all of my meetings, all of my emails, all of my work trips, all became such, so climber centric. And it was never something that I ever pursued. It was just something that I kind of stumbled upon. I was like, well, that sounds neat <laughs> and then started doing it. Um, so it's really hard for me to give people advice because I think my greatest advice for people is, you know, I continually ask myself, you know, what kind of person I want to be, like, who do I want to be? And what would the person I want to be do in this situation? Uh, and I wake up every day and I, I think I do a pretty good job of just living a very passionate life and, and only doing things because I choose to and because I really want to and because it's important to me. And I think if you live like a life of passion, then people will see that and it will lead you down the right paths. Mm. True passions, even in the normal application. Uh, yeah, that that's a line that's always stuck with me, but that is something that you you're actually living like that and um it, it's it's just it's refreshing to see someone doing it so organically so i'm kind of geeking out over here a bit uh, i want to i want to get back to because we're still pretty early on um you know i want to say in your to compare it to where you are now so you know you learn how to do this you know you learn how to climb in eagle it's called eagle rock correct in colorado in Eagle. Just Eagle, Eagle, yes. I don't know why I want to put the rock in there. Um, it sounds like it should be called <laughs> Eagle Rock. But yeah. so you learn how to do it and you just kept progressing. You kept teaching yourself. You're surrounded by all this talent all the time, it seems like. So what was your first, what would you consider your first big climb outside of Alaska? Hmm. Uh, I remember doing my first, it was my first international climb that I had planned entirely by myself and we didn't hire a guide for. 
or anything. And it's also my first really high altitude climb. I did a Pico de Orizaba in Mexico and it's 18,400 and some change, I think, feet tall. Um, and glaciated. And so crampons, ice axe necessary. Some people rope up for it. Um, but we just climbed it without ropes and harnesses. Um, and it's not a highly technical peak or very difficult other than the fact that it's very high altitude and that can be uh, difficult. But I think that was like the first time that I felt really empowered because I did plan and execute the entire thing on my own. Um, including like the logistics of traveling to Mexico and taking three different buses and hiring a driver to take us up a four by four road, what have you, all of the things necessary to accomplish that. And I think that was like the first big one for me that I felt really proud of. Huh. So Mexico, you know, that is, I'm going to be honest with you. I thought you were going to give me something like Australia or New Zealand. That's because when you think of Mexico, you don't think of climbing a lot. Of, the general public, at least, doesn't think about these huge mountains. So your your worldliness has just kind of opened another chapter out there to everyone who hasn't thought of it. Um, I want to we're going to get to the business side of it eventually. But I, your story is just very intriguing. So. You know, you you go to Mexico, you do your thing. Did it kind of spark uh, a bug in you to just keep it going, or how did you how did you feel after you know a week or so had passed after the climb? I think uh, you know, like I was saying, the more skills you acquire as a climber, the more things that become available for you to explore. And I think one thing that really uh, solidified for me in my mind is I had always been worried about I have all these dreams to do all these like high altitude climbs but I actually never really knew how I would do at high altitude because at, in here in Colorado the highest thing we have is 14,000 feet and I've spent a metric fuck ton of time at 14,000 feet and I know that I perform perform really well at that altitude, but I had no idea if I would perform well at 18 or 19,000 feet. And, you know, let's say I went to Mexico and I realized that I am just really susceptible to getting altitude sickness. And all of a sudden these like things that I've been dreaming of this entire time are not actually accessible to me. That was, something that I had always been afraid of. And I think that's something that it really resolved for me because I felt great. I wouldn't say I felt fantastic at 18,000 feet, uh, everyone bogs down, but I felt strong and good and like I could keep going. And so uh, that was, it did empower me to continue having those big dreams of these like high elevation adventures all over the world. And I knew that they, I knew for certain at that point that they would be accessible to me at least. 
that that obstacle had been kind of checked off. Oh boy. Okay. So I call that the dog. The reason why I say that is because if you've ever had a dog, once a dog gets something that it likes, it it always wants it or it, it kind of wants the next thing almost. And I'm not putting words in your mouth, but you have it kind of sets the foundation for what I call like the dog mentality of just like I want to keep going. I want to push it. Uh, so that's what immediately what I thought of. Now, I'm curious. So you realize you felt good at 18,000. Well, you know, or you didn't feel horrible. You felt strong. So hitting the fast forward a little bit after that one, what were what are some more of your mo- your more notable climbs after that? So after that, that's like the last super high altitude thing I've actually done in a while. Um, mostly because everything like all the high altitude stuff that you would ever want to do is usually international or like it takes several weeks to climb. So you're taking several weeks of PTO. Um, you're doing these like multi thousand dollar expeditions. They require thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars of gear that I would also need to acquire. Um, and so I definitely put that on hold at least for a while because I was like, okay, well now I know I can do it, but I don't have $10,000. So, you know, after that, I kind of, I really got into endurance, like more like a endurance objectives. And so I would say doing high mileage and high vertical gain objectives in short periods of time. And ultra running and doing like semi-technical or technical really long multi-day routes in like a day um kind of became my next thing that I enjoyed and so I kind of dabbled with that in Colorado started doing like higher mileage higher vertical gain trips like there's this peak called Vestal Peak And off the top of my head, I cannot remember like what the total stats for that are, but it's pretty high mileage, a lot of elevation gain, and there are a number of technical climbing pitches on it. And uh, I just trying to do that as, as fast as I could. And then, you know, more recently I went to the Cascades and climbed Forbidden Peak in a day. And we did it in like 18 hours, I think. Uh, I feel like we could have done it a lot faster, but got really bogged down by some traffic jams on the rappels. But ultimately, you know, that was like a 20 some mile, 8,000 feet of gain and with a lot of technical climbing in it and a lot of going across glaciers that don't have trails. And so a lot of route finding involved in river crossings and things like that. And doing like those really big endurance pushes have been kind of my new thing that I enjoy. I'm going to plug your Instagram here. Um, And also I want to give a big shout out to Darren out there in East Oakland, man. Hey, I appreciate your brother. I love all the comments. Keep them coming. Um, You're 
you're do- you document a lot of the things you do and you're not the type of person like you don't go back and erase old posts after a while, right? No. Yeah, I'm going to encourage everyone go there and check them out because there are one there are some fantastic views, but you can really see just the not only the beauty of the world, but you can just see like this portfolio of her vocation. That was the word I was looking for earlier. It's a vocation. Um, and it's just ultra impressive. And so what I want to do is I want to take a step back again, because as you mentioned, um, a lot of these, at least elevation wise climbs, you know, they're take weeks and you got to take time off and they take, you know, possibly, well, tens of thousands of dollars. So while you were going out and doing all these things, I know you mentioned that you were an instructor. Um, what else did you do to kind of keep yourself afloat financially as you were going through this? Uh, a lot of things. So uh, there is definitely a period of time. And if you're in the climbing community, then you're familiar with the term, but I'll, many people aren't. People call it dirtbag climbers. Uh, a lot of dirtbag climbers, they just like care so much about their sport that they forego kind of all of the comforts of Western society. And so a lot of people live out of their cars uh, and they eat like ramen noodles and only drink Pabst um, for their entire lives. And they just like focus solely on climbing. And I was never that hardcore, but I did live out of my car for a period of time just because I was spending so much time traveling for climbing and doing things outdoors that I didn't really see the sense in paying rent somewhere. And honestly, I like really couldn't afford it because I was taking so much time off work <laughs> uh, to go climb stuff. And so, yeah, I did like the car camping thing for about a year. Um, I've definitely done like the multiple hustle thing where I was working several jobs at a time uh, just to afford the the lifestyle. And I didn't really get out of that cycle, honestly, until like working for the American Alpine Club was my first like full-time salary job. And it's fully remote. And so it allows me the flexibility to still uh, travel and climb, but also be working at the same time. And it doesn't, it's a nonprofit. So, you know, I'm not going to get rich working there, but it definitely has been a lot more conducive to my lifestyle. But um, before then, it was just a lot of pinching as many pennies as humanly possible and working many, many jobs and being uh, unhoused for periods of time <laughs> as needed. Yeah, you really do have that, that go get it almost, I am going to call you a nomad, that nomadic, like, I'm going to do whatever it takes to do what I want spirit. And truth be told, other than this fighter that I met out in Frisco, I don't think I've met anybody like that. So I mean, I, your sheer, you know, grit and willingness to do whatever it takes, uh, I'm going to applaud you because, you know, as you know, the biggest setback for most people is themselves. Like they will stop themselves from doing something because they think they can't do it or they're not willing to sacrifice modern comforts. 
uh, I'm in that boat too, people. So don't, 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 don't message me like I, like I'm doing it. I'm not doing it either. All right. Uh, but <laughs> I, I applaud you for it. So obviously you just said, you know, you're not going to get rich off of it, but now that, you know, you're at the Alpine club, you're also a, is it safe to say a sponsored athlete by North face or what's your official title with them? Yeah. So I am sponsored by them. I'm part of what they call their athlete development program. Um, and so, yeah, they're providing the same concrete resources of sponsored athletes, uh, including like funding and gear and education and uh, one-on-one mentorship from other sponsored athletes. That's excellent. So uh, if you don't mind, would you mind telling our listeners kind of how you, how that opportunity arose and when you realize like, oh man, this is going to really free me to continue to do what I do. Uh, yeah. So I had known, you know, through my network at my job, several of the North face athletes. And so they were talking about this new program that they were releasing and, um, inviting people to apply and some of them are posting about it on their social media and you know something really interesting is that i never even really self-identified as a climber until like this last year like if you had asked me like hey are you a climber i'd been like oh yeah like i know how to climb or like yeah i do it occasionally but i don't know if i would call myself a climber um And despite, you know, the huge imposter syndrome, I decided to apply for it anyways. And they had over 2,500 applications. And I don't really know how many were at each stage of narrowing it down, but I did initially get an interview. Um, And I was like, whoa, this is crazy. Like, I can't believe I actually got an interview for this. And there's still zero chance that I'm actually going to be selected. But, uh, (laughs) you know, at least it's cool to, like, be, like, they're entertaining the idea of me being (laughs) an athlete. And then I, there's a second round of interviews. And um, a while later, this is like a several month long process of me just like waiting to hear. Um, I was announced as one of the 17 finalists. And uh, I was like completely mind blown and like, okay, well, imposter syndrome or not, like this is, you've got an opportunity and it's up to you to like make the most of it. And, you know, so like what, what I was saying about how a huge barrier to a lot of the things I've really wanted to do is, is finances and gear, um, and uh, personal knowledge and experience even and it, just like automatically all of those things that I felt were like kind of holding me back were just like taken care of. And it's like, oh, you need experience and knowledge. Well, here is like one of your climbing idols, they're now your personal mentor and they're going to teach you everything that you need to know. Um, Oh, you don't have the gear required for this? Well, now you do. Um, 
and yeah, you don't have the money to fund these sorts of things. Well, now you do. And it's like all of a sudden, like somebody snapped their fingers and all of these things that I was like, I never like was one of those people that got down on themselves and thought this will never happen to me for me. But I thought that it was definitely going to be a long road of me grinding until I die. <laughs> um, and then all of a sudden I was like, whoa, maybe that's not the case. Definitely still grinding, but um, yeah, some of those obstacles that were previously in my way were uh, suddenly taken care of. And that was amazing. And it's honestly a, a really incredible opportunity. Personally, I know that you've gone through some other barriers as well regarding your health. If you don't mind, would you mind filling our, our listeners in on some of the health concerns that you've had and how that's had an impact in your career and your vocation and you know how you've overcome those as well? Yeah, so um, I've had some pretty substantial health issues over the past couple of years. I think the first one was um, a few years back, I discovered that I had cervical cancer and ended up having a procedure to have it removed and uh, thankfully hasn't reoccurred since. Um, but that was a huge mental block for, for me in my life. Um, I like never thought I would be scared of having cancer at like however old I was when that happened, probably like 24. Um, and additionally, like the, some of like the medical procedures involved in that were really triggering for uh, some of my PTSD. And so uh, not only was I dealing with the big C word uh, and like living alone in Colorado and I didn't really have like the support of a network of friends or family out here. You know, I just felt really alone dealing with all of that and uh, was really struggling, really struggling with my PTSD additionally. Um, and then after that, I had my gallbladder rupture like pretty soon after that. And it was pretty serious and was like rushed into trauma surgery. Uh, had a bit of a rough recovery after that. And it was just like very sudden and very like one moment you're fine. And the next moment you're like on the brink of death and in excruciating pain and being rushed into trauma surgery. And like, once again, just like feeling super alone and like, what the fuck, like my life and my body is like completely out of my control. And I think especially like hurtful for me because I am so active and so healthy and like I eat super healthy. I exercise regularly. I don't really drink alcohol. I don't do drugs. And I'm like, what the heck? Like, <laughs> you know, I'm doing everything right. And why is this happening to me? Um, and after that surgery, I ended up uh, becoming septic and almost dying again. And I mean, at that point, you know, I felt myself getting sick. And I, that was when I was you know, living out of my car at the time. 
and I felt just kind of like off one day and lethargic and I since I was living in my car I knew that I was coming under the weather and I texted a friend to ask if I can kind of just like take a shower at their house and hunker down and do some laundry and I said I was on my way there and then never ended up showing up and they and that's not t- entirely uncommon for me I'm like I can be a flaky person or just like you know I go where the wind takes me and so the fact that I like didn't show up for a few hours is not necessarily abnormal um but they had you know this spidey sense that I was not okay and ended up coming and finding me in my car just completely passed out with like a 105 degree fever and uh I remember like fading from consciousness and being like, oh, I can't be like locked in my car in case, you know, I'm incapacitated. And so I remember just cracking my door open, like right before I passed out. Um, So I wouldn't just be stuck in, like trapped in there. And, you know, hopefully people would notice like a door being ajar and come and help me. And yeah, she ended up like rushing me to the hospital and uh, (laughs) once again, was on death's doorstep. I lost like 16 pounds in six days and was just like really weak and frail afterwards. Um, And it was just kind of like hit after hit after hit. And then uh, after the sepsis thing, I really struggled with like getting well again. And so every five weeks or so, I would wind up in the hospital every couple of weeks, about once a month. And it was the same thing all over again, where I would just start to feel kind of sick. And I would be like, oh, here we go again. And I would go to the hospital and I would spike a crazy fever and get chills and throw up and like get really weak. And they'd give me a bunch of antibiotics and a bunch of fluids. And then send me on my way. And then five weeks later, like it just kept happening over and over and over again. And I think like a huge obstacle for me. And, you know, they asked me in one of my interviews for the North Face, like, what's one of the biggest obstacles that you've overcome in your life? And I think it's terrifying to be terrified of your own body. And you're like, if, if I can't even trust my own body, like, how can I trust anything? And I just felt like I was walking around with like this huge, like, I was like scared of the world again. I was scared of myself. I was scared of like everything. I felt like so vulnerable. Um, and I think that's a huge part of why I love pushing so hard in the mountains because it teaches me to trust my body and, and really feel like empowered and like, look at what, look how strong I am. Like, look what my body can do and that I can trust it to take care of me. And I can trust it to keep carrying me forward. You know, even when I put it through like the most rigorous of tests. And um, so it's like, you know, two sides of the same coin on one side. It like definitely made me like 
really scared <laughs> and made me angry and frustrated. And on the other side of the coin, it really pushed me to just fight harder. So I know that's a lot to unpack and I want to thank you for sharing that with our listeners because while I know I don't know how you felt going through it, but I can feel the emotion in your voice. Um, I can say out there that there are a lot of people out there with aspiring dreams that they have things they want to accomplish and whether they're holding themselves back or whether something physically is ailing them or whatever it is, um, you have a real life example of here of what can happen if you just, you know, if you hunker down and just, you know, learn to try to trust yourself again of what's possible. And so I want to thank you again for that. Um, as we transition here into our wrap up, uh, I want to, I want to ask here, we talked a lot about vocation, passion, doing what you love, may not necessarily knowing what's going on, but just doing what feels right, trusting your intuition. You may have not said that. I'm going to say it for you, though. <laughs> there are there are people out there that want to do that as well. And you've kind of talked about, you know, you didn't recommend what they should do, but you kind of just told your story and how you thought about it and the thoughts that went through your head as you were going through it. Looking back now in the position that you're in, you, I mean, in in your view, in your eyes, as I see it, you have the world in front of you. I know you don't know what you want to do next, but if money wasn't an option six months from now, what would you like to be doing? And it doesn't even have to be career related. Um, you know, I would really just like to, I think every day that I, I, I frequently like look at my calendar and I will fast forward a couple of months and I'll see a gap in kind of in my schedule. And I think, well, what are all the things that I could put in this gap? And I think ultimately what drives me is I like to fill, keep filling out those, those pixels. I really am driven entirely by like my, like lust for having experiences. I just really, really crave it. And knowing about stuff and hearing about it and reading about it is not good enough for me. I love like getting down and dirty and experiencing it on my own. And so I think six months from now, I don't know exactly where I'll end up being, um, but I know that I will be continuing to like fill in those gaps, those pixels. Um, around the world places, exploring new places and um, continue honing my skills, doing the things that I love doing. For aspiring sponsored athletes or those that are on the verge of it, what, looking back now, how, how what can they do to put themselves in a position to become sponsored or to elevate themselves even more? I would say um, it's really not enough to just be like really good at what you do right now. What a lot of companies are looking for is to uplift uh, like change makers and community leaders. And um, 
they're starting to see the value in that over just like who's doing like the hardest thing and who's doing the like the newest thing that no one's ever done before um yeah i think a lot of people are starting to invest in people as individuals as um as much as they're investing in them as athletes and someone said the other day something they're like you know we support people as humans and as climbers and i think you have to bring the human aspect to the table and you know there are so there's so many talented people around the world i think now in the age of social media you're just like constantly inundated with uh photos and videos of people doing really cool shit constantly and like really pushing barriers and like that's honestly just like all too common nowadays and it's like old news you're good at stuff so is everyone else um so i think really just harnessing you know like what value do you have to bring to your community and like what impacts and changes you think that you are capable of leaving on the world and like how can you use what you're doing as an athlete as a medium to create that change um is really what you need to focus on organic growth that and i'm not talking about the social media sense but that's what they're trending uh that's what's trending in the marketing space and that's a perfect example of it last question i got for you uh state of the industry question so i always like to ask everyone how do you feel about the current state of your industry do you feel like it's trending in the right direction are there major changes needed is there an idea that you have that you truly think could be in a innovative that can be implemented i'm just curious when it comes to your industry uh that you call the industry already uh what's your current take on it yeah my current take is that the industry that i'm currently in is is changing a lot and it is overdue for change uh i remember when i first got hired or was interviewing for my job at the club you know, they were saying in my interview that, you know, there was a lot of change going on and how do I, how do I feel about, you know, working in an industry that's actively changing after over a hundred years of being the same. And I said that I would be concerned if you weren't changing, <laughs> like that's concerning. Um, Historically, the climbing community and outdoor spaces have been really exclusive to marginalized communities and minorities and um, haven't traditionally been safe spaces for anyone that wasn't a wealthy white man. And so I think that's a huge change that's occurring right now in my industry and I um, people are starting to recognize uh, adaptive and differently abled athletes a lot more. And there's a lot more support and resources for people um, that haven't traditionally been represented. And, um, and they're starting, there's a platform now for them to be leaders in their communities and use the huge reach of larger brands 
and uh, companies in order to like set an example and be leaders in their communities that haven't previously been represented at all. Um, and I think that's amazing. And I also think that, you know, climbers, we're a tenacious bunch and <laughs> all of us, you know, get good at our sport because we're okay being uncomfortable and because we're okay, like putting in the hard work and getting up and grinding every day. And I think that my industry is really starting to harness that in other areas of social and environmental justice and in change and policy. And I think a lot of climbers, you know, make really good advocates and really good change makers in their communities and are willing to put in the hard work and are very tenacious and very passionate. And I think my industry is now starting to realize like we can utilize that for like positive change in the world. And it doesn't all just have to be the self-serving act of climbing. <laughs> you know, we can actually do something with this. Uh, so I'd say it's not perfect. It, there's a lot of work that needs to be done, but it is trending in the right direction. Hannah, I want to thank you for your time. It has been incredible. Uh, I love all my shows and I know I feel like I say it every other one, but you know, everyone has such a great story to tell, especially you, especially all that you've gone through, even, in, <laughs> you know, thinking back to meeting in Wichita, Kansas at all places and look where, you know, you've, what you've done with your skills and where it's taking you. So I want to thank you for your time. And also I remember the name of that book now earlier that I can't remember. It's called one person, multiple careers. And I knew that was going to happen near the end of the episode too. So, uh, <laughs> I don't want, I don't want that to take away from my appreciation from you though, but Hannah, it's been a hoot. Yes. That's corny. I'm saying it. I don't care. Uh, can't <laughs> wait to see you in person again. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Thanks for having me on. This has been great. It's hard not to get choked up listening to her story, um, not only because I know her personally, but because anyone that's ever been dealt, you know, um, a shitty deck or lemons and made lemonade out of it, you understand how sweet it is to finally achieve success. So what I want to transition into now, normally we go into the reflection part, but we're going to switch up the format moving forward here. I find that majority of our listeners are going to get more value of this spread off to a separate episode because a lot of these episodes, they do get pretty heavy and there is a lot of information in there. So moving forward, we will be reflecting in separate episodes that are a little bit shorter. So with that said, I want to thank everyone for your continued listenership. We do appreciate you. Like, share, subscribe, and we can't wait to see you next time. Stay cool world. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e 
AV on YouTube.